0: You're tuned into 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with graduate students here at UC Berkeley about their work on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by herpetologist Dan Portick from the Department of Integrative Biology and uh, he's going to tell us about his research on skinks. Did I say is that wrong? <laughs> is that wrong? Um,
1: well I, I did do skinks for my my master's work but I mostly work on um, amphibians now.
0: Amphibians. Okay, so... Yeah.
1: But I, I guess you could just generally say reptiles and amphibians, African reptiles and amphibians.
0: So what is a herp? Let's start there.
1: A herp? Well, i asking the tough question <laughs> Yeah, now. herpes is actually a Greek word that means creeping thing. Oh. And so it can describe diseases, but it also is used as the root of herpetology. And herpes, since it is creeping things, can refer to the slimy, gross things that we find on the ground, such as amphibians, but it also includes reptiles too, non-avian reptiles. So those are lizards and snakes.
0: Okay, but not like other slimy things like slugs?
1: No, those wouldn't be included.
0: Okay, okay. So, okay, reptiles and amphibians, and which of them do you study? Amphibians.
1: I mainly study amphibians now, but I've worked on a number of reptile taxa.
0: Okay, so reptiles we can think of like snakes, for example, right? So what's an amphibian then?
1: An amphibian is um, one of three things. So it's either a frog, a salamander, or a very strange amphibian that few people know about, the Sicilian. Mm. The Sicilian is a legless, usually blind form that generally lives underground. But it also has the same slimy skin that frogs and salamanders do too.
0: So why is it legless and blind?
1: The lack of legs is thought to help it navigate underground. And we actually see a number of examples of other reptile species that are not closely related at all to the Sicilian that have lost their limbs too. And these are generally things that swim around in the grass or in the sand or in the leaf litter or soil.
0: And so the blindness is probably also from being underground. They just don't need to see. They don't come up ever.
1: Some species retain their eyes and they come up and they forage above ground. So some Sicilians are known to come to the surface and eat crickets and worms and things that are moving around in the leaf litter, but there are other species that rarely come up, and so a lot of those end up having degraded eyes.
0: So how did you get interested in herps?
1: That's a great question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you still don't know?
1: <laughs> well, I I was never really interested in them as a kid. I wouldn't go out into the woods and flip logs and look for salamanders and try to chase snakes and do the things that a lot of other herpetologists claim to have done, but for me what was most exciting was in some point in late high school, I went to a pond and collected a bunch of water, plants, the mud that was in there, and tried to scoop up as many organisms as I could find. And this included invertebrates, so like diving beetles. It included snails. And it also had a bunch of amphibian larvae in there. And I would watch these tanks that I put them in every day over an entire summer. And during the course of that time, I noticed all the changes that were happening in the amphibian larvae ultimately resulting in their metamorphosis. And I was just completely fascinated by this this life cycle, the fact that you can have a larva that lives in the water and gets its nutrition from things that are in the pond and then eventually emerges and leaves and lives a completely different lifestyle. And that's really stuck with me ever since.
0: How many different types of animals does that happen with? I mean, I don't expect you to actually know precisely, but is that unique to herps, this uh, metamorphosis? Obviously, we can think of butterflies. but They don't live underwater, but...
1: There are other things that have aquatic larvae, so dragonflies, for example, have a, they call it the nymph stage, and these are really big invertebrate predators in the ponds, and they're actually eating tadpoles and other things. And eventually they, they morph out, too, and they become the adults, and then they they have a fully um, terrestrial life.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you, you're sort of a naturalist, and that's how you got interested in herps, seeing this metamorphosis. And uh, was that during your undergrad or how, like when in life was that?
1: That was right at the transition between high school and college.
0: Okay, and so what did you study for your undergrad?
1: I started out pre-med, as many biology majors do, but I quickly came to realize that I'm not as interested in humans as I am in other biodiversity. And I think one of the most influential courses I took was a class on biodiversity. And the whole purpose of the course was to walk through the, the tree of life, learn about all the different organisms that inhabit this world, the characteristics that make them what they are, and sort of the sequence of, I guess you would call it, evolution of these different lineages.
0: And then did you do any research as an undergrad, or did you save that for your master's?
1: After my first year, there was a professor who was a morphologist and a herpetologist, and he noticed the illustrations that I made in his class were were really good compared to a lot of the other illustrations. And he recruited me to work in his lab for that summer um, doing illustrations of turtle embryos.
0: So you got recognized in science for your art.
1: Yeah, actually, yeah. that was my my first in.
0: I, that's something people might not realize is that there is definitely a place for art in biology. I know a lot of our colleagues are, you know, very proficient artists.
1: Yeah, scientific illustration is a really fantastic thing. And an entire course can be devoted just to learning the different techniques that are involved. And so this professor really helped to train me on ink illustrations in particular.
0: And so what's the benefit of the illustrations? Like, why why is that an important part of science? You don't have to answer that if you that, want.
1: That is a tough question because you can argue that it's actually really outdated now with the, the kind of photographic capabilities that we have or CT scans and things like that.
0: Although you could also argue that... If you want to learn a morphology, to be able to draw it really can help you wrap your head around it more than just like staring at a photograph.
1: That's true. And actually, uh, I just heard a a herpetology presentation from Kevin Padian, who was talking about reptiles of the Jurassic. And um, one of the things that he emphasized was one of his mentors really made his students draw everything. And whether you're a good illustrator or not, it really helps you to understand the organism better, how it's put together or how it functions or even just the general morphology of it.
0: Okay, so art, got you into science and then uh, where did you go from there? You did a master's.
1: I did do a master's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: and you had to do research in your master's, right? I'm
1: just trying to think if there was any transitions before then. I mean, the illustration was a segue into research and I began to to learn more about different kinds of research. So beyond just morphology, other kinds of big questions that we can tackle and I became very interested in systematics and I took a course on systematics late as an undergrad and one of the traditional ways that we do systematics which is the sort of reconstructing the relationships of organisms is using morphology and that is a big part of you know my my sort of core education as an undergraduate was learning morphology but I began to learn more about these um, other kinds of techniques including molecular sequence data where you sequence a gene of an organism across several different organisms, you can use that DNA sequence to put together uh, their evolutionary relationships too and so that was really inspiring, but there wasn't there weren't a whole lot of resources at my undergrad institution for doing that kind of work, and so I really wanted to pursue a master's degree with that as a focus
0: okay, so let's break down systematics just a little more before we talk about your masters. when you say the relationships that organisms have to each other like can you say a little bit more about what that is, actually?
1: Yeah, so it's not um, the relationships of organisms like we would think about maybe in terms of ecology, sort of how organisms interact with one another, but it's more about the actual evolutionary relationships of these organisms. So if you were to reconstruct their history, which groups of organisms are more closely related to other groups of organisms?
0: And so, like, maybe they shared a common ancestor or something at some point in the past. And so they'd be more closely related than groups that that shared a common ancestor even earlier than that.
1: Exactly. And the more closely related organisms are, in general, we find that they share more characteristics.
0: And so that would be both the morphology or like the shape and also genes, right?
1: Yeah. So the DNA sequence is really useful for reconstructing the common ancestors of these different groups. And so we have a pretty good sense of when certain species evolved and when they diverged from one another based on these sequences.
0: Cool. Okay. So you got into systematics. You just kind of wanted to know how organisms are related to each other. And is that what you did your master's on?
1: So uh, for my master's, I didn't necessarily study systematics, but I studied a topic called phylogeography. And phylogeography is systematics on sort of a fine scale. So looking rather across species within a species and looking at the distribution of that species across a landscape and whether or not the DNA sequences are variable across that landscape. From those sequences, we can usually infer patterns of isolation or perhaps um, biogeographic barriers that prevent them from having uh, gene flow.
0: So, okay, we'll just, we're going to simplify this a little bit. Why would DNA within a single species be different across a landscape?
1: There are a lot of uh, processes that can affect gene flow or interrupt it. And usually when we have isolation of populations, that's when we see... Divergent DNA sequences or variations in DNA sequence.
0: And so that would probably be one of the things that actually leads to new species forming, then.
1: It's one of the possibilities. So if a a mountain uplifts right in the middle of a range of a species, over time, they're going to drift apart in terms of um, maybe their ecology, but also in their DNA.
0: Okay. So phylogeography, that's a new word for all of us, then. So you're specifically interested in the DNA aspect of that, though, not the morphology?
1: I study both. And I think, um, as scientists, we're really required to take a a larger approach to many of these problems. I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable only examining the DNA and inferring that species are new or different from each other. When I have some sort of evidence that they might be, I would take a look at other lines of evidence, too, such as morphology or um, certain characteristics about their coloration. And even things like behavior can change and with frogs, for example, their calls can be very different.
0: Okay. So you said skinks were definitely your masters, right? Skinks, yep. So are those amphibians or reptiles? Those are reptiles. Those are or reptiles. A, a group of lizards. Okay, okay. So either way, though, reptiles, amphibians, what sort of distance are we talking about if you want to actually look at this phylogeography? I mean, how far can they move? Do you Can you do it in, like, your backyard or you need to look across much bigger range?
1: There are questions at all different levels so some people are very interested in landscape genetics which can be across a few you know nature preserves or something like that and they can even infer whether or not roads are affecting gene flow between very localized populations but for a lot of other things you can really zoom out to the range that you're interested in and the limitation is really how much landscape that animal is actually inhabiting
0: And where were you looking at skinks for your master's?
1: The species that I studied are distributed in Namibia and South Africa. And so I visited South Africa to try and collect some of these, but I was never in Namibia.
0: Okay, South Africa. I've been there recently, so uh, I know a little bit about it. Which uh, part of South Africa were you in?
1: My first trip, I spent a lot of time in the Cape region. But I also did fieldwork in Limpopo province, which is in the northeast of South Africa. And then we went into Botswana to do additional sampling.
0: So what was it like working in South Africa? Is it difficult to get permission to look for lizards?
1: It certainly is. Just like anywhere else, um, you need the right kind of permits to do the work. And an additional difficulty is sometimes getting the export permits. So when we collect specimens for scientific purposes, usually we want to deposit them in a natural history museum. And if you're in the U.S., you don't need to export it. You just deposit it in one of the institutions in the States. But if you want to take that material out of a foreign country, you need proper export permits too. And that can be pretty difficult to obtain.
0: So what's the value of bringing the the organism back to the United States? Is it just so you can spend more time looking at it, or are there other reasons?
1: So generally when we collect animals for scientific purposes, at least in in my field, we take DNA samples. So we'll take a tissue sample of the animal, and that needs to come back with us so that we can do the, the DNA sequencing work. But we also take the body just in case. And a lot of these places we're finding more and more new species. And let's say maybe you just take a tail clip from an organism and then you let it go. If it turns out to be a new species, you don't have a specimen that you can you can describe. You don't know the morphology. You don't know these other lines of evidence for describing this species. And so it's important to have both components of that and that they're accessible.
0: OK, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit here. So we're always hearing about extinction, extinction, extinction. So how is it that there are new species that you guys are finding?
1: It's a combination of things. Part of it comes from people simply not working in these areas as much as other places like the U.S. or Europe. And the lack of studies here is really starting to show through when we're doing more and more field work, we're recovering more and more new species. And sometimes they're easy to identify as new. They look strikingly different but the advent of you know molecular data and dna sequencing is really helping to push that forward too sometimes the differences are not so obvious
0: and then another question maybe only devils advocate to for people like you and me but so what's the value of having these specimens in a natural history collection
1: i like to think of specimens in natural history museums as similar to books in a library and so these are resources and they're also markers and so when we have a species from a certain geographic location in the world we know that that species occurred there and also at a particular time and so we can use that to estimate whether or not certain extinctions are actually occurring if you go to the same site and you can no longer locate that species that's one good reason why we should have baseline museum collections but another good reason is simply accessibility so on our trips we collect a lot of animals different kinds of animals all reptiles and amphibians But I'm not a specialist on all those different groups, and there are other people who are better equipped to make decisions about species and taxonomy and things like that. And those researchers also need access to this material. And when you deposit it at a natural history museum, usually those museums have the capability of sending the material out on loan to other institutions and other researchers.
0: Okay. Good answer. So I want to talk a little bit more about how exactly you collect these things. But first, I'll just say, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to The Graduates here on 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I'm joined by herpetologist Dan Portick, talking about his work uh, primarily in Africa, right? So how do you, like, what is the actual process of capturing a lizard because you guys have your own special techniques, right? <laughs> I've heard a little bit about this, so.
1: Yeah, it's it's variable. And I think one of the big distinctions is um, really setting apart capturing reptiles and capturing amphibians because although we group reptiles and amphibians together in our in our field, they're not really close relatives, which makes it a kind of a strange discipline. But also, they have very different behavior and ecologies. So Amphibians primarily come out at night, and reptiles are almost always active during the daytime. But of course, there are exceptions to that. But in general, if you want to survey amphibians, you're not going to be out during the day. And if you want to survey reptiles, you're not going to be looking around too much at night.
0: So do you do them back to back? Because that sounds like a really (laughs) long day.
1: (laughs) It is. And in the tropical areas, uh, we generally wake up early and we go out. When the sun's just rising and the animals in particular the reptiles are out basking trying to gain enough heat to do whatever activities they're going to do for that day and when you find them basking you have a much better chance of of catching them because when they're really warmed up they become very hard hard to catch
0: and you just like jump at them and try and put your hands around them or I sometimes mean, yeah that's how kids so, do it so
1: uh sometimes you can but most Most lizards are very skittish, and they're very quick, and they they watch you just as much as you're watching them. So we do have a bunch of tools that we use. One of those is the lizard noose, which is exactly as it sounds. It is a noose at the end of um, usually an extendable fishing pole. And the noose is very small, small enough just to fit a lizard's head in it. And if you get the noose around the lizard's head and you pull up, usually it catches on their neck, and you can actually lift the lizard off the ground and capture it.
0: And you can do that without hurting them, actually. You can if do you it without know hurting it, them. If you know what you're doing.
1: Even even on a rough day, I think most lizards end up all right after that process. And it's a, it's a technique that people use, especially when they catch and release the animals.
0: Okay. So you're just out there, like, fishing for lizards, and uh, that's how you spend your days?
1: You can also use a blowgun. And that's a little more damaging to the organism. So we only really use it if we absolutely need the specimen.
0: Okay. And so we're talking, like, a little tube... With a dart inside of it.
1: We don't use darts because the darts aren't very effective. We use little plastic pellets. And the pellets are heavy enough to stun a lizard. In general, it doesn't kill the lizard unless it's very small and the pellet's very big. But it's enough to stun it so you can run up and grab it with your hand. And then they typically shake off the impact and end up just fine. (laughs) Yeah, a
0: little woozy, but that's it. So that must take some skill then. Yeah. Something you've picked up.
1: I, I definitely am out of practice, so...
0: Okay. Well, uh, maybe that's because you're like finishing up and you haven't been out in the field for a while. Or...
1: It's been a little while. Yeah.
0: yeah. So what do you do for your PhD? It's still in Africa and it's still on herbs.
1: For my PhD, I still study some groups of reptiles, but I'm primarily focused on amphibians. And the center of my dissertation is really one family of frogs. And this family has the most species of any other family in Africa. And this family's endemic to Africa. So we know that it diversified there. All these species formed across tropical rainforests, both in the lowlands and in montane regions, as well as drier areas, too. And my main goals are to reconstruct the relationships of those frogs to understand their evolutionary relationships. And I'm also interested in what processes have generated that amount of diversity and whether those are processes that affect other clades of animals in Africa or whether it's specific to this group of frogs.
0: So when you say endemic, what what does that mean, endemic to Africa?
1: It means you won't find them anywhere else except Africa.
0: What about in the past?
1: That's a good question, and we really need a good fossil record to determine that. And unfortunately, frogs, because they're so small, they don't often preserve well. And so we have very few good frog fossils to work with. So I can't really say anything about their historical distribution, but Currently, they're only found in Africa, Madagascar, and the associated islands around Africa.
0: Are they mostly in Western Africa? Because I know that's where you've done a lot of your work.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of species in West Africa, but they're most abundant in any tropical situation. So anywhere there's wet forest, you can find these frogs. So that's at low elevations as well as on the tops of mountains.
0: So that's another reason you wouldn't find very many fossils then, because tropical environments aren't really great for fossilization.
1: No, they're certainly not. <laughs> no,
0: they're not. So, uh, which parts of Africa have you been working in for your dissertation?
1: Since I've gotten to Berkeley, I've been to Ghana, Cameroon, Uganda, and Mozambique.
0: Wow. Are there like more difficulties for any of those countries than over others, or is it all pretty much the same?
1: So, some of the some of the countries are definitely more challenging. I'd say places that you know the language is English are easier to work in logistically. Whether or not you know a researcher, a local researcher in that country to facilitate fieldwork, permits, and logistics, that definitely helps too. But also just the historical context of, of working in that country really matters. So I'd say one of the most difficult trips was in Mozambique. And this is a country that's been ravaged by civil war for nearly 30 years and only recently is developing infrastructure and really getting a handle on its, uh, its independence. And there's still several million landmines that are unaccounted for. And so when you do your fieldwork, you really have to rely on local guidance to figure out where you can go and where it's safe to go. And you really have to think about what your impact is by being there.
0: Yeah, and not just what the impact might be on your skeleton if you step on one of those landmines.
1: Yeah, but we enter these countries as foreigners without... You know, often the cultural knowledge of the area or the history of the area. And so, you know, there are, a lot of these countries have a long colonial legacy. And so that's another difficult issue that sometimes comes up in, but most of the time doesn't.
0: Yeah, that was sort of my next question, uh, just to paint a picture for the audience. I mean, you are a, a tall redhead, so I don't, you you must stand out a little bit in Africa. And has that, has that impacted your work at all? <laughs>
1: yeah and it's been a really interesting experience as a tall white man going to these countries um, and each country is very different. I shouldn't just lump them all together; that wouldn't be fair, but I've gotten the reaction of little children seeing me and screaming at the top of their their lungs and running <laughs> because their mothers tell them that when they're bad, the white man comes to take them away, and then there are also situations where people are just very excited and welcoming. And they're, they're happy that we're in their village and that we're taking an interest in their, their local forest.
0: Awesome. Well, <laughs> I guess I should ask you a little bit, uh, do you have any results you want to share with us? Have you, have you learned anything about why these frogs are so diverse?
1: I'm just starting to piece all that together. And so one of the most difficult challenges for me was generating enough DNA sequence across these different species to really reconstruct their relationships. I've had to use new approaches Um, genomics-style approaches to collect these data and learning those lab techniques and also how to process those data, that's been a real challenge and probably the central problem of my dissertation. But now that I have those relationships, I can start really untangling some of these questions.
0: So we can just imagine you like half the time, you know, in some sort of jungle safari outfit and the other half the time in like a lab coat. Like pipetting things? Is that is that a fair breakdown? It's
1: a fair breakdown, but we don't... I wish I wore a lab coat. I'm generally in, like, my sandals and shorts. Okay. So, <laughs>
0: so just safari gear all the time, basically. Yeah,
1: I guess you could do that.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> well, as we come up on the end here, because it's almost over already, I know, right? I should ask, do you, do you have any advice you would give to younger students who are interested in HERPs or interested in, in science and research?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that I had a very traditional start in herpetology, and my interests only really came about sort of late compared to a lot of my colleagues. But I would say as you sort of take your classes and explore the world, you really need to find what's motivating you and which which topics are more interesting than others, because this work is very difficult. It's not easy to do field work. It's not easy to do lab work. It's not easy to publish papers and do all the things that graduate students are expected to do. what really helps is if you're motivated by your work because it really does energize you and keeps you moving forward but so my recommendation is really to find what you're passionate about and just try to develop it not everything's gonna work out but you might end up on the right path eventually
0: and that's just good life advice in general i would say Uh, but what okay what about um what about is there anything that you want the public to know about your field? Are there any big issues that, you know, you wish the public knew a little bit more about? I mean, we all hear about that chytrid fungus. I don't know if that affects your species at all.
1: Yeah, the chytrid is an interesting case because it seems like it's affected only a handful of African species. We don't really see the same kinds of die-offs that are occurring in other places where mass mortality events around ponds where all all the individuals of a species are found dead. We don't really see that, and we actually find that a lot of those frogs we're collecting in Africa are highly infected with some type of chytrid, but we don't know exactly if the strain is the same as the the strain that's really affecting Central and South America.
0: Okay, well, we're just about out of time here, Dan, so do you have any last words for the audience, anything you really want them to know? Frogs and snakes are not the same. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've said it all. That's fine. That's 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 ideal, 30-minute package. Got it all down. Well, you will not be with Integrative Biology much longer, so uh, it's been definitely a pleasure to get you on the show here before you move on to your next appointment.
1: Thank Um, you. I very much appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to KLX Berkeley. The graduates is over. This episode is over. We've been speaking with herpetologist Dan Portick in the Department of Integrative Biology about his work on... Reptiles and amphibians, also known as herps, uh, and all of his experiences in the field in Africa and also what he does in the lab. So, lots of really interesting things that we heard about today here on the Graduates to Interview talk show, where we speak with UC Berkeley students about their work on campus and around the world. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Graduates, but until then, my name's Tesla Munson. Stay tuned, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley.